This podcast is brought to you by SAP Pioneer. Welcome to the Asia edition of Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech podcast. I'm Rachel Williamson. And I'm Karis Palmer. Every fortnight, we dissect the successes and failures of financial innovators and bring you the people at the top of their field working to disrupt banking. From traditional banks doing things differently to startups navigating the unforgiving world of financial services, I'm Simon Spencer, and this is Breaking Banks Asia. This week, we are talking about open banking in Australia. But while the country's consumer data right, or CDR, is the envy of some regulators in the UK for its ambition and breadth, it covers not only banking, but energy, insurance and telecoms, it's gotten very bogged down. The CDR is overseen by nearly half a dozen different bodies and must balance regulatory contradictions, like privacy requirements that are more stringent than those in the Privacy Act. So has Australia let the regulators too far off the leash? Or is this simply a starting point for open banking that can be cautiously opened up over time? We will also take a look at whether the CDR's strict rules around privacy and security might be its saving grace, after continuous data hacks on companies throughout the Australian economy this year cause Aussies to finally get serious about data security. Our first guest today is Brenton Charnley, the recently former CEO of TrueLayer ANZ, a UK open banking company that was aiming to be the foundation of the new Australian open banking sector. Brenton now runs a consultancy called Open Finance Advisors, and he's a long-standing tech innovation guy, but went deep on open banking and is a wealth of knowledge on the sector. Full disclosure, I know all of this because I worked with him while he was at TrueLayer. Welcome, Brenton. Thank you for having me. So let's address the elephant in the room. TrueLayer fully closed its operation in Australia in October, but until I stopped working with you guys in May, everything seemed so possible. What happened? It's a great question, and I can't obviously go into too, too much detail on it for commercial sensitivity, but you know, for all of us that are aware of what's going on and the news out this week from a number of companies that the tech wreck is really happening. And for VC-backed companies, that's compounding um, growth. TrueLayer being a payments and data company focusing on open banking is across multiple markets around the world. And Australia was one of those. And Australia was one of the early early expansion plans for TrueLayer outside of Europe. So uh, TrueLayer made the difficult decision to, to focus on Europe at this point in time. Let's talk about what that also means in the context of the Australian open banking sector, because it feels like everything has slowed down pretty significantly since those first couple of really gung-ho years, including the regulatory and, com- and compliance setup at the start. You know, open banking in Australia has been around for about five years, active for about two. So what's going on? What's happening in open banking right now? I think... The reason why the momentum has slowed down is because, as you've alluded to, the CDR isn't just about banking, right? And so, if 2022, we really saw a lot of the energy and momentum shift towards energy data sharing, which has just gone live as of the 1st of November. So, you know, I, I think that is a real challenge for banking at this point in time. Do you see that momentum continuing? Because it doesn't seem like there are many push points right now to make people really excited about this anymore, to make people go, I'm going to do this, I have a business case for it, and it's going to be really cool. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. At the start, there's, there's a lot of, uh, I mean, typically called the innovators and early adopters looking to come in and, and make the most of industry and regulatory change and and, and referencing Jeffrey Moore's work, the chasm, we're, we're squarely within what he calls the chasm at the moment of technology adoption, right? And, you know, sometimes you don't come out of the chasm and, you know, if we think about Australia, Trilay had to exit the Australian market. We're in that and we need to see uh, people investing, Australian and international businesses coming to Australia, becoming accredited and getting things in market, right? That is the adoption. The technology adoption is the question that we're at at the moment. I think we've got, uh, you know, two years ago, data reliability, and there was no data really outside of the big four banks. Now we're, now we're at, you know, as I said, better coverage. We really should be seeing market participants enter. And are we? Well, based on what we're seeing at the moment, like only 33 accredited data recipients, you know, it takes a long time. It, it's complex to become accredited. There's a lot that you need to go through. It's not as easy as filling out a form and and uh, getting customers' data. And then even when businesses launch something to market, consumers have to then utilise it in terms of people participating. From a data sharing perspective, we're at a, a great point now that uh, it's reported by the ACCC that we've got close to 99% consumer data holder coverage. That's the banks being data holders, those who share the data. Um, But the kind of reliability of that information is still kind of up and down. I really talk about the last two years as being that of the phase of compliance, whereby banks have had to meet their compliance obligations. And we're really kind of coming out of that now. In terms of the other side, the accredited data recipient side, those that receive the data and act for the consumers, if you think about it that way. Um, We're kind of just getting started in in terms of uh, numbers. So comparatively, we've got 78 banks, data holders, who are publishing the data. That's, that's, as I said, it's almost a complete set. Um, But we've only got 33 accredited data recipients, of which a number of those are also the banks, right? So 23 of those 33 accredited data recipients are active. That is actively have a software product in market and looking to do something. So we're at this, this early stage and we really need to see more accredited data recipients getting products into the hands of consumers. But as consumers, we we wake up and we don't think about the tech underlying or the pipe, so to speak, and how things are done, right? We just want something to be done for us and, and often to be done easier. Some of the common use cases that often come to the front are money management and personal finances, the ability to be able to see all of your accounts in one place is often the the top. So um, I know, for example, 86400 and and UBank do that at the moment. And, and that's a very common one for, for you to be able to see the balances. So you've got one place to manage your money. That's often a pain point. I don't have to log into all different apps. On top of that is the spending and data enrichment. So that's something common that people just want that to be easy and I want to be able to connect and share my data and, and know who's using it. One question I do have about those interesting open banking use cases like personal financial management, that's the PFM you mentioned earlier, is where is the business case for these in Australia? Who pays for it? It seems like in a developed market like Australia, the best early use cases for open banking are these cool and useful ideas for consumers, but they don't actually make any money. Yeah, no, that's a great question. No one pays for it. Ultimately, it's a feature of of your banking product. And, and this is part of the challenge with this is that to try to build a standalone business on 
personal finance is is, is really challenging, right? You've got to have complementary or ancillary services, and and fundamentally, personal finance comes back to banking. And so, you know, the banks are in a great position to be able to go and do that. And that's, I guess, when we come back to the state of open banking question, we've only got nine of those 78 banks who have tipped in to become accredited data recipients. Now, to me, that's a very clear and obvious use case for all of those banks to offer account aggregation, spending analysis, and transaction, like the personal finance things that customers almost expect, right? That That's just the a base use case for banking now to be able to see that. I expect next year we'll see more banks come to that. Action initiation. This is the payments question. So action initiation in Australia is the power for a consumer to say yes to a third party to make a payment or take an action, if you're talking about other parts of the CDR, on their behalf. And without it, A huge part of what open banking could do in Australia isn't possible. Last year, the government agreed to move forward on this, and now there's a draft bill on the table to make it happen. But what's happening with action initiation, Brenton? When are we going to see it? When is this next step forward going to happen? It depends if you've got a bull bull case or, or a bear case on this one, really. Based on what we've seen play out for the the data sharing obligations, I think we're quite some way away. I mean, I'm saying at least two two to four years. I expect to see active action initiation for payments. Payment initiation, most of the time, is a once off, or could be open ended, and by that I mean it could be for a finite number. I, I bought a pair of shoes for one hundred and twenty dollars. I approved for, let's call it athlete's foot to take $120 out of my bank account. So that's very different to a to a kind of mandated direct debit setup. Because payments is complex, conceptually we get it, but there's a lot of regulation and intermediaries, facilitators, banks. And the reason being in Australia, we haven't yet seen the change is that banking and payments is fundamentally entwined. Right. So there's a lot of complexity just to get to that point. Whereas in open banking payment initiation in the UK, regulations are done under the open banking regulations. You don't ever touch the payment. Your job as a payment initiator is to merely send the messages between the two banks. Why wasn't this included at the start (laughs) of the CDR, given it's going to be, you know, action initiation, not just payment initiation, when all of that regulatory compliance activity was actually happening? I think it's because you know banking and payments are so intertwined. We don't have the regulatory footing to be able to shift. Um, similarly, payments because it is such a big deal, it takes a lot. And I keep on saying that word. There's, there's a lot for for that to happen. So I think data sharing is ultimately the easier and less important use case to focus on. And therefore, I think it was easier to bring the banks to the table for them to agree to to share data. You also have to remember there's not really a business case for data sharing. Whereas payments is a big business, processing payments and making sure it happens. You know, people expect that if I send my money, that money is going to get there. It's not going to disappear. And therefore, people charge a fee for that. You know, one and a half to two and a half percent, you know, often, you know, can go up to 4% for some of the, the wallets. And on that point, the reason why it really took off in the UK is because it's free. So payment initiation in the UK is free. From a consumer, if you think about it, instead, I have a choice to pay by card one and a half percent, or I can do it in real time with payment initiation, and that's going to cost me nothing, right? In a consumer at that point in time, of course, you're going to say, yeah, I want to pay with with payment initiation. 
You mentioned competition just then, but let's be honest, in a country like Australia, open banking is more about privacy and security. You know, you own your data, you control it. And anyone who's been given permission to look at it has to behave themselves and keep it under lock and key. So what is it about this market in Australia that makes privacy, as opposed to opportunity, as say in the Philippines or India, as we'll talk about in our next episode, the driving force? Again, this comes back to fundamental regulatory principles. And unfortunately, in Australia, we we haven't been able to divorce the regulations from the open banking competition and the privacy regulation. So they are entwined. The fact that the CDR regulatory landscape includes the OAIC, the Information Commissioner, Treasury as the rule setter, and, and the ACCC goes to show that this is this is highly complicated. In in Europe, GDPR was the fundamental pillar for the privacy regulations and how any actor deals with your your private and sensitive information. Whereas in open banking, we're dealing with both the competition and privacy all in one. And that's what brings the complexity. So until that changes, we're going to be dealing with a highly prescriptive, complex environment whereby, you know, players like TrueLayer or your AdaTree or the bank. So anyone looking to consume the data have to consider how and when they use the data. And, you know, that's playing out more so in, in current days, obviously, with, with data being a critical thing. But for me, I think starting with a an overly protective is environment is a good place to start because, you know, consumers are highly critical of new things, particularly new technology. And if something goes wrong with it, it's very hard to then come back and build that trust again. So, you know, I, I think having a prescriptive standardised process in which you protect and share data is great because the alternative at the moment is unregulated data sharing, where you actually share your login credentials to your banks. You're actively giving someone your password to your bank account that they could log in with you. So I think, you know, from a privacy protection, I think it's in a great place, but that comes with uh, the downside of, you know, the alternatives are easier, less regulated. So in order for that to change, I mean, ultimately, and, and we saw this in the recent statutory review completed and a number of the market participants have been saying this for a while, we need to see a phasing out of the existing unregulated um, data sharing, commonly called screen scraping. We saw that in the UK. There was a significant uptick in participation in open banking in the UK when the regulator essentially said, well, there's a phase-out phase period of this at this point in time. And I think we're there now because you've got the data sharing, you've got good coverage across you know, at least the big four banks, which covers 74 to 75% of the market, as well as all the others, right? We're at 99% coverage. So I think now's the time to be able to do that because there's a viable alternative. You were talking about the banks before and the number of banks that are now participating but have also become accredited data recipients or an ADR. That's the highest level of access in open banking in Australia. They've been worried about the easy movement between banks and the competition element against them. So have they actually embraced open banking, do you think, or are they stalling? I mean, from the numbers, nine of 78, you know, clearly we haven't haven't seen that yet. And I believe I'm just looking at my, my statistics, but about half of those nine aren't yet active yet either. So you can become accredited as a data recipient and kind of remain inactive and, and not to actually go to the active stage. So 
yeah, we really haven't seen you know whether they're stalling or not. I think the reason being is that they've gone through at least three years of heavy compliance obligations and they're probably taking your breath. But we really hope in 2023 that we're going to be seeing more banks because it's an obvious one. As an ADI, authorised deposit-taking institution in Australia, they they already comply with a number of the information security obligations of the Banking Act and therefore it's it's essentially very easy for them to become accredited data recipients. And then, you know, to your point about the competition, you know, the concern that people will switch my personal view to this is like, if you've got a good relationship with your bank, the CDR or open banking more broadly doesn't encourage you to switch. In fact, it encourages you to be sticky because you can then bring data from other banks into to your bank. It's the reason why people will stay within your app. You have to make the choice mm-hmm. and invest in the services to, to make sure that someone doesn't want to leave, <laughs> right? So if someone's so, uh, you know, flighty that they want to leave your business, I guess those two things don't don't make sense. Like it probably means that you're not doing the core services better. Australia's high regulatory burden is creating a lot of complexity for something that, from a user perspective, ultimately wants to be simple and streamlined. So where does Australia need to loosen up? Where does it need to say, okay, the tension between privacy and security needs to give way a bit towards actual usability and allow new participants to functionally use this new system? At the moment, the the CDR journey is highly prescriptive. That is, you know, there's incredible amount of detail. There's a number of, you know, quite a number of screens compared to the kind of journey that the UK and Europe has. How many screens do you have to go through? More than more than ten. It would depend on kind of what the use case is, right? That essentially means that the the time taken for a consumer to do something. And let's come back to that consumer use case, the job to be done becomes harder. So there's inherent friction in there. So so ultimately, it's great that there's a prescribed process, but ideally in loosening, it would be good to move to a principles-based approach. So instead of clicking through 10 screens, actively agreeing to what data can be accessed and for how long in order to buy those shoes, have one screen where the business says, this is what I need, do you consent? yes, like I'm here, I'm already doing this process, right? So the second area is at the verification side, right? At the moment, the CDR uses a two-factor of verification where you get the kind of one-time password and and you need to put that in, right? That's a longer process. We saw a significant decrease in the time to verify in the UK from biometrics and strong customer authentication. So most of us have iPhones um, and therefore using your face ID or biometrics as an example to to quickly verify that this is me, is it, you know, there's a location, there's a, a, a unique ID being your, your banking login, there's the phone, and then there's your biometrics. So, you know, moving to that would greatly decrease the time it takes to verify. Ultimately, from a base regulatory standpoint, if, if we could have standalone privacy regulations outside of banking, that would enable us to, I think, move towards this principles-based approach. So say, hey, as long as you're getting the customer consent, as long as they're consenting for an explicit time, um, and as long as you're verifying them, you should be able to kind of move on and, and uh, share their data. You're talking about biometrics and so on which Australians are keen users of with, say, their iPhones and their banking apps and so on, but still kind of side-eye, particularly when it's mandated. Do you think the spate of data breaches in Australia will make people want to engage more with the ownership of their data, or are they going to be spooked by the word open 
and that use of mandated biometrics? This is obviously a personal opinion on this one, but anything that is going to be done to improve the storage use and protection of consumer data, I think will be a positive move. And the consumer data, right, as we've talked about, is complex for a reason. It has highly complex information security obligations on anyone who uses that data. Therefore, I think it's going to be better. I think from a consumer's perspective, you're absolutely right. I think there's going to be that lack of trust and awareness for anyone who's asking you for customer data. I think it's just going to be front of mind now. So, you know, the good thing about where the CDR is now is that it's at that you know, restrictive, highly regulated space. So we're hoping that that does that. And I, and I think the alternative at the moment is people are sharing their bank login details, right? So, you know, I would expect actually more people not do that because of the, the sensitivity there. Um, and then to perhaps, you know, use the consumer data, right? And open banking, however, coming back to our initial point, there's not enough use cases in market for people to, to do it, right? I mean, from a PR perspective, this should be the time in Australia when open banking participants should be going full court press saying, we can solve this problem. And I've not seen that yet. All I've seen is banks saying, open banking might cause more problems. <laughs> Sharing data under open banking, there's no requirement to share a passport or a driver's license or, you know, you're already verified by the bank and none of that information is shareable. No one can get access to any of that information. So there's no personal information to that level which is highly sensitive that that can or would be shared from open banking. So, you know, that, that to me, it's not a solution to that specific issue. It's uh, complementary protection in place. You know, it's it's like another tool in our in our kit to protect ourselves in the in the in the data environment, whereby we can say, well, hey, I don't want to share my information on PDF on email anymore. Um, and yeah, you know, we often get asked to do that. You know, we just drop our passport in and and, and our a copy of our driver's license and send it to someone. And you're like, well, hang on a sec. What if that email gets breached somehow? So I think that's the broader issue and that's the whole digital identity issue, not, not the open banking one, which is how do I verify myself without having to share the underlying information? So I think we'll see movement towards those sorts of facilities, digital ID, um, and that, that could equally have a great, impact into the CDR and the fact that you might have a consistent, you know, verification process across sectors. And I think this is where it plays out for the CDR and that because it is a economy-wide ambition, if there was a single consent process um, and, and or verification process, then, you know, that, that's only going to make it easier for consumers to use it across the economy. Thank you so much, Brenton. Now a few words about our sponsor, SAP Pioneer. Many of you from banks or insurers listening to this podcast will have experienced highs and lows. It's easy to get excited about the innovation we're talking about, but it can be daunting taking the digital leap. How can you build or upgrade to the latest technology to deliver all that competitive edge without risking, literally in some cases, breaking the bank? Well, launched as the financial services spin-off from SAP, SAP Finear offers the best of both worlds, combining the agility of a startup with the experience of a best-in-class software company. Their lean architecture, open APIs, and modular approach are future fit and get you to market fast. But they also have the reliability and scalability that makes them the trusted partner for the world's leading financial institutions. So if you're looking for a new fintech who's a safe pair of hands, check out 
sapfinia.com. Data security and privacy is a pertinent issue in Australia right now. Ongoing major hacks have exposed health data, passports, driver's licence, you name it. So given open banking in Australia, alongside competition, is pitched as a data security and privacy issue, we're keen to find out whether it will be able to meet this goal. Stephen Wilson is our next guest. He's an international authority on data protection, digital identity and privacy, and his company Lockstep Technologies researches and develops unique privacy-enhancing tech. Stephen has also been retained as lead digital identity advisor by the governments of Hong Kong, Australia, Indonesia, Kazakhstan, Macau, New Zealand and Singapore. It's good to have you here. Thanks, Rachel. Good to be here as well and great to connect with the team again after so long. The open bankers say that for financial information, their tech is a solution to creating more secure data. And in Australia, more secure energy data, insurance data and telecoms data because of the CDR. The bankers, specifically most recently the Australian Banking Association, say opening access to this data to third parties and creating more pools of information that need to be secured is just another security risk. So which is it? All of the above and none of the above. (laughs) I think what's really interesting, and I hope that we unpack this in our conversation, is that data is becoming more and more obvious as an asset. These assets are worth billions of dollars, and the security budget of the world's biggest companies is more in the tens of millions of dollars. So there's something just a little bit asymmetrical there. We have let data become more and more valuable, and we've never really had the opportunity to step back and go, ooh, I wonder what our budget should be for these things. And it's also about the the hypersonic speed that we do IT at. People want to be portable, and this is going to bring us back to CDR soon, but people want their data to be portable, so there's intense competition amongst the big clouds. Everything is fast, 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 churn, 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 and the fragility of these systems is actually what makes them vulnerable. It's time for our security practice to catch up and to be just a bit more measured and I mean, let's be more painstaking. The the rush that we have to release systems is a bit out of control. Now, we have these very, very complicated supply chains as well, and we have allowed the information supply chains to get complicated. So these are important things, and I think CDR is really turning on some of those questions of whose customer are you talking about, and can you be really reliable and robust in the way that you deal with the the data processes and the data custodians. The CDR in Australia has created a lot of regulations around privacy, how data needs to be stored, how it can be accessed, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that within this new framework, the security practices have actually caught up? I think the short answer is no. I don't don't think any security is caught up with the, the rate of change. Why not? Where are they falling short of that? Because of competitive pressure. It's, it's because security is, is largely unregulated and you get market failure whenever safety is something that people are going to try and compete on because they won't. They will compete on cost, time to market, functionality. You can't compete on safety. Now, the interesting thing about CDR and where I think it is heading in the right direction or, or I'm reasonably optimistic is that for the first time, to my knowledge, in Australia, we've got 
uh, enforceable rules and standards have been legislated for security. And if you are a CDR participant, then there's a whole set of rules that the data standards body sets that you are legally obliged to follow. Now, there's no precedence and those laws are untested and the standards themselves are untested. But I do want to acknowledge that I think there's been a bit of a like a cultural breakthrough in Australian cyber regulation where the CDR has said, hey, this is important. We should be regulating. Because, oh, my God, we've, even in healthcare, there, there are no enforceable standards for IT security in Australia, and that's a bit nutty. So CDR is heading in that direction, but it's still really early days, isn't it? None of, that, none of the new rules are, are technically tested, nor are they legally tested. So Australia has been lauded by experts for taking a holistic approach to open banking and the, and the consumer data right. But the entire sector here seems to have stalled and data breaches separately have everyone spooked. How does it get back on track? How do you make people feel more comfortable with sharing their data in a very new way, but which is still more secure than what they do at the moment? For example, screen scraping. Oh, my God. You're triggering me, Rachel. Screen scraping is such a bad idea no matter what. And I think that CDR is, again, that's a good thing that we're showing people the way to get through screen scraping and do something that's more message-based and better authenticated. The big issue, I think, is the economic assumptions under CDR are pretty rosy and there is a laissez-faire underpinning that suggests that savvy consumers are going to go and leverage their data and, and look for better deals and compete for better deals and, and negotiate. And I think that that's a bit, a bit um, optimistic. I think it's a bit idealistic that Australian consumers are um, that caring and that sophisticated that they can leverage their data in that way. So that's why I think that CDR, in a sense, is underperforming. If if the performance measure is how many people have changed accounts and how many people have ported their data to building societies. However, I think that what will happen instead is that consumers are going to be aided and assisted by professionals and by intermediaries. And um, this is a, a this is yet another interesting dynamic because we've had you know, decades of financial advice scandals and, and tightening of financial advice regulations. So I get that. But I still think that the role of the financial advisor is super important and that it's that intermediary, you know, the skilled professional who really can negotiate on behalf of clients to banks. I think they're going to be accessing data and, and using data for, for, for a competitive force or for a negotiating force. I don't think that the underperformance of CDR to date is a terrible news. I, I think it's kind of predictable and that with more sophistication and, and with more time, we should see CDR evolve to put more focus on those intermediaries who will be representing, you know, agents. So uh, CDR, I think, will come good when we've got more sophistication in the way that we're going to bundle these services and, and make them available to consumers. Let's go back a bit. The security elements of the CDR were legislated and are regulated. Do you think the participants in this regime are going to follow the spirit of these rules or the letter? Well, I think the spirit of what was legislated is the idea that there should be competition for information and that information is increasingly like goods and services and that should be subject to, to a market. 
I think that what we don't have yet is is a material, tangible market or a marketplace in which it makes sense to pick up data and move it somewhere else, give it to a custodian, change the holder, um, use it as if it is a thing, use it as if it's like a, a petrochemical or something in a supply chain. And partly the problem there is the social. We haven't really been doing data for long enough for us to have good uh, digital maturity and good informational awareness. So that'll take some time. But again, I think that this is why intermediaries and agents are so important. Do you think the type of security the CDR incorporates is going to be able to keep up with the times? There's a wonderful technology called verifiable credentials, which is all about allowing people to really robustly carry proof of how old are you or proof of your driver's license. And these are technologies that are hitting uh, commercial reality through mobile wallets and this sort of thing. Uh, The Australian states are world leading in this regard about how to give people digitised versions. In New South Wales, you can get a digitised version of your working with children check or your boat licence or pretty soon your um, your construction certificates, your trade licences and so on. That technology could be easily extended to capture everything that matters about you in financial services. So um, as a customer, your bank account numbers should be equally robust. I should be able to index myself in the whole CDR system based on some sort of unique account number that is private to me. It's secure. It's held in a digital wallet. If I lose track of it, if I get hacked, no criminal can use that number against my back because it's cryptographically tied to me. So this verifiable credentials technology is a super story about how do you get the important facts and figures about people and and, and secure them in a, in a wallet so that people control them and they're safe. Now, on the flip side, I think that all of these intermediaries and agents that we're talking about, and indeed the financial institutions that are holding and, and receiving and giving up data, we can use verifiable credentials technology to be absolutely precise about the endpoints in this in this great big system. So I'm painting a picture where you can use cryptography to make sure that you know that the endpoint is secure, you know that the source is secure, you know um, you know what you need to know about a customer so that you can in- index them and move their data around. And we can start to, I, th- I think the term is reify, like, like make real, give people a user experience, give them some user interfaces that are, that are really tangible and also consistent. The other issue here is that sort of, you know, your internet banking experience is different across every bank. Your mobile banking experience is all different. None of this stuff is really harmonised yet. So there's not a consistent visual language and there's not a consistent mental model that the poor old consumer has. I think we're pretty close. I would say in the next three or four years, we're going to see a lot of this cryptography get into the cloud. Um, it's already in your handset. I mean, the, the amount of security that's in your smartphone these days is astonishing. And it's beginning to see the light of day. It's beginning to give you really secure edge to cloud data channels. And I, these these fundamental building blocks are going to be put together, I think, really quite quickly now into platforms, cloud platforms that will make this CDR marketplace come come to life, like make it real, and make it appreciable, make you know, literally make it visible so that people can have a visual track on where this precious resource is flowing. I suppose delving into these new ideas around data security and use might be what open banking in Australia needs to get it moving again. 
a bit more design thinking as well. I mean, maybe we need industrial designers to be designing the user experience of this weird stuff that we call data. We're expecting people to care about the security of, of stuff that's just thousands of kilobytes of information in a database that looks like money or it looks like a mortgage or it looks like some other financial product. And we expect people to be able to pick that thing up, um, talk about it, appreciate it, secure it, whatever the hell that means, take care of it and get somebody else to look after it for you. Maybe some 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 really smart designers can can have a new look at how to make that real for people. But just under the covers, under you know, the plumbing is almost there where we can make this stuff really secure and, and robust. I think resilience is an interesting term. The digital ministers are using that term now to, to make identity data more resilient. And that's exactly what we need. We need the data to be resilient so it doesn't fall into the wrong hands. What kind of tech could do that that's really exciting you right now? I'm interested in the next level down, and I can say that some of this secure, verifiable technology in mobile phones is is moving ahead really quickly in some of the US states and in the EU. So the, the, the idea of a verifiable credential in the EU will mean how does your pan-European identifier, your, your EID, how does that um, move from a flimsy plastic card to something that's digital and strong and resilient? And they're doing that with smartphone wallets. So there'll be Google and Apple wallets that will contain your European EID. And that should mean that your your experience of your EID will be much the same as, you know, tap and go or tap to pay. Now, the thing I think where this stuff really starts to sing is that all of those other things that are in your wallets, your driver's license, your Medicare number, in Europe, your, your EID, it'll be your travel credentials in Europe. You'll be able to go to a, to a boarding gate on a plane and, and get on the plane because you've got your EID in a mobile wallet. You'll be able to present these things digitally. Stephen, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to trigger you a little bit more. Screen scraping. It is obviously the noir of banks and anyone interested in security in any way. But it's also seen, particularly in some markets in Asia, where open banking is just getting off the ground without the same level of government support as in Australia, as a critical middle step. Now, do you agree with that? It's kind of understandable, and I hate to say it, it's rational for the for the person to say, look, in Asia, it's a middle ground, it's a stepping stone. It's rational to say that because they are reacting to competitive forces where they're trying to get to market with a new solution to give people greater access to greater financial products. And if that means giving my password up to a third party so that they can log on to my account and suck my data out, I get it that that's rational in air quotes, but my God, it's stupid. It's insane. I mean, why do we allow ourselves to have this race to the bottom where time to market and an insane lack of friction is something that people are going for? And you wouldn't get that in, in automotive, but we wouldn't allow that because people would die. Now, we're almost at the point where data is so important that people are going to suffer really important damages. People can be can be broken by hacks. They can lose all of their money. And I don't want to be sort of sensationalist about death and dying, but this stuff is pretty important. So why the hell are we allowing this race to the bottom with screen scraping? Why do we allow that to be an acceptable 
you know, middle way forward. It, it, it's a compromise that's too too extreme. It, it, it's funny that there's something about cyber and something about the internet and, and indeed something about software that just escapes regulation. And I guess there's all sorts of reasons for that that we don't need to go into, but that's the reality that people have been reluctant to regulate this stuff. And there's no such reluctance to, to regulate physical safety. I've had a windscreen damage and I can't go to any old supplier and get any old windscreen because these things are safety standard and safety standardized in Australia. But cyber's different. And I think that CDR, I want to come back to the to the positives of CDR. I think the idea of having enforceable rules and, and, and cybersecurity standards is unprecedented in Australia. And I would really like to see that play out and given a chance to breathe. Thank you so much, Stephen. My pleasure, Rachel. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, SAP Pioneer. Rock solid technology, bold creativity. If you enjoyed today's episode of Breaking Banks Asia, don't forget to share it on Twitter, leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to our show. This helps us build our audience and support our sponsors so we can continue to bring you a great show every fortnight.